Please be seated and please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We are in the last verses of the first chapter of this glorious epistle of Paul to his beloved Ephesians. When we think of characterizing the first 14 verses, how could you possibly follow up those verses? What would it look like? What would Paul say after laying out election in the Father, by the Father, in the Son, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, assurance of salvation, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our eternal future in Christ? What could possibly come next? Well, in verses 15 down to verse 23, we have what you might say is the great petition. If the great blessings of God or the great praises to God are contained in the first part of the chapter, this great intercession of the apostle for the, for the church, not just here at Ephesus, but for every Christian after, the apostle prays for us that we might comprehend with spiritual minds with, and see with spiritual eyes all that God has laid out in those verses that precede our text today. Now, I will take two sermons to go through these verses. We'll sweep through them today a bit, 15 through 23, and then next sermon from Ephesians, Lord willing, we'll start at verse 19 and go to verse 23 and focus on the Lordship of Jesus. And you'll see there's just so much here, it could hardly be covered in one sermon. But for now, please hear God's word, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's bow together as I lead us in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you thankful and frankly overwhelmed by the grace that you have heaped on us in Christ. In the grace that you have shed upon us to assure us by your Holy Spirit. Help us now to receive the asking of this prayer that we are reading. That we would be able to know what is the hope to which you have called us. That we would know more of the riches of our glorious future that is wrapped up in belonging to you through Jesus. Lord, enlighten the eyes of our hearts today as we study your precious word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the clips that I enjoy viewing when I receive them are those clips where a young child who has not been able to hear 
is given a hearing aid, and then they can hear their parents' voices for the first time. Another one I saw more recently, it was literally called Cutest Babies Seeing for the First Time. Now it was sight. And these babies were six months old at the most. Uh, they weren't walking yet, just able to sit up basically and look around. And it was clear that they did not have uh, perfect, or they didn't have good vision, vision enough to even see who their parents were. And so doctors would figure out in some way how the, uh, the right kind of glass, uh, glasses would work for them. And these babies, one after another, it's a compilation of 30 of these. And all of them are touching because you have a little baby who the parents have been taking care of for several months now. Um, and the baby's not even been able to look in their eyes or really recognize them. And so they, the parents will wrestle and put the, the glasses. They're like goggles, really, because the baby will just rip them off with their normal glasses. So they're these goggles, and they're very uncomfortable at first. They don't like it, and they move their head, and they move their, their hands to try to get rid of whatever is bothering them. And then after a few seconds, as the parents step away in the little goggles, the glasses are on the little baby, the baby stops and can start seeing things clearly. And you can almost always hear the mom start crying right away, and the dad's just really excited talking to his son or his daughter, and the child looks to him, and, uh, and the child smiles because he can see the faces now of the ones who've been taking care of him. He's heard the voices, but now he sees their faces in clarity. One of the videos, the father got down close to the baby, and the baby immediately reached up and felt the dad's face and was smiling and giggling, and it was so touching. There's not a dry eye. that No parent could watch this and not have a tear or two come to your eye as you see the, the sight be turned off and then turned on, and, and how everything changes when they can see the relationship with their parents, um, the relationship with the world around them. They start looking at their own hands and feeling their hands. It's just an amazing thing to see what happens when someone who was effectively blind is given sight. Now they can really start to take in the world around them. Paul's prayer for Christians is that we would have spiritual sight so that we could see the manifold eternal blessings that he just spelled out in the first part of Ephesians. A natural mind could not conceive of the things that Paul described. But for someone who is in Christ, we have, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, the ability to see the depth of it all that that God is describing for us through the apostle in this opening chapter. Paul's prayer is for our spiritual eyes to be open so we can see all that is ours in Christ. His prayer is for us to understand at a deep level all that was revealed in the opening verses. Paul prays for God to give us spiritual understanding to fully appreciate the blessings we have in Christ. That's the gist of the prayer that spans from verse 15 to verse 23. First, look at the passage with me and you can see this is a prayer of thanksgiving. Paul's thankful for what God has done and promised and he's also thankful for something he sees happening in the people. So before he gets to the content or the petitions of the prayer, there's a description of what prompts him in his prayer. Look at verse 15. For this reason, all the verses, that long sentence that came before. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Look at verse 15 and 16, and you see what's causing or prompting this prayer? He himself contemplating the depth of what he just revealed by the Holy Spirit concerning all the benefits Christians have. For that reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. So he had heard a report back about the Ephesians. Remember, he's in jail now, but he knows the Ephesians well. He hears a report back 
probably from Timothy or some other visitor, of their faith in the Lord Jesus. So he knows they are resting in Christ in his finished work. But that's not all. He's heard of their faith, but it says in verse 15, and your love toward all the saints. These two features, the report of their faith in Jesus and their love for one another and love for the saints, for other Christians, these things cause him to be thankful to God and prompt him to pray. Look at verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Why? Because he had heard that they had faith in Christ and love for one another. They were persevering in their faith in Christ, the gospel he preached to them, and it was expressing itself outwardly. It was manifesting in a way that everybody could see because they loved the brethren. And all the saints gives the idea that the Ephesians knew they were connected beyond even their local body. This idea that they had love for the whole of Christ's church. That's what we gather from verse 15. And Paul, moved to thankfulness, makes or prompts him to pray. And he remembers the Ephesians personally and specifically. It says in verse 16, remembering you in my prayers. Some versions say it well, mentioning you in my prayers. What an excellent test for us, by the way, as we pause and consider this. Are we a people who trust in Christ and love one another? That's the church. You know, for all that we could say about the church, if we have true faith in Jesus Christ, that means we know that we are sinners who need Christ. We've been redeemed and forgiven. If we have experienced that, it is natural. It's a natural outflow from that grace shown to us that we would love others and we would show it to others. It's not just filling our heads with a knowledge or a truth. It's that truth transforming us and manifesting by how we love one another. He's giving a wonderful commendation. Verse 15, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Faith in Christ and love for each other. That's the church. That should be us. When everything else is stripped away, can we be characterized as people who trust Christ and love one another? That's the bottom line. Paul is so thankful to God when he hears this report about the Ephesians that he begins his letter with a commendation. He gives great praise to God, then he goes to God in intercession, and he gives praise to God for how the people had clearly been grasping these things, at least at a beginning level. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks. He's just always thankful, and he's mentioning them in his prayers regularly. Now, notice this commendation he gives. It's not to say that I have heard that you have reached full maturity in your faith in Christ, and you love each other just as good as anybody could possibly love one another. He doesn't say that. In fact, the book gives instruction about improving on both of those things. But the apostle recognizes that this is a process in all of us and in every body of Christ. So a church has never fully arrived in this, this side of glory. But we can recognize when God does the work of salvation in us, we should be able to look around and see love towards one another. That's important for the apostle, the pastor of the Ephesians, to give them this encouragement. It's a powerful work, the work of encouragement. And I would give this this kind of commendation to you, the people of Redeemer. I am thankful constantly for your faith in Jesus. I know God gives you the faith, gives me the faith. But seeing it exercised, seeing you cherish that when we gather, when we talk amongst ourselves, 
few things can make a pastor more joyful than knowing that you have grasped the gospel. And it's connected to the same thing Paul connects it with. And there I commend you as well. Love for one another. Showing love for one another, especially during a difficult time, how people have reached out to be supportive of each other and are concerned with the testimony of Christ. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you always in my prayers. This is something that all of us as church leaders should take to heart, the constant appreciation for the work that God is doing in our body by giving our members faith in Jesus and love for one another. And this draws us to constant prayer that this would continue, that God would keep showering his grace upon us, that we would be humble in God's sight, recognizing this is all of his work. We do well now to pay close attention to the content of the prayer. We see what's prompted the prayer. He's thankful for what God has done in Christ and how the people show faith in Jesus and show love for one another. But what's the focus going to be now? In the the two points that I have outlined there for you, there's a lot wrapped in there. And you'll see why I have to take another sermon to unpack what it says about Jesus. But just take the content of the prayer for now, starting in verse 17. The content, verse 17 says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, here is, here's the petition, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So what we have here is a prayer that asks for God to give us comprehension about our present hope and calling, who is Christ, and our glorious future, who is Christ. It's a bit of our present and a realization of what we have in the present and where it's heading in the same person, Jesus Christ. So this is the first part of his prayer that he offers. He's praying for, to say it again and clearly, spiritual comprehension about a couple things. Who we are in Christ and where this leads us ultimately in Christ. You know, here is the reality. In ourselves, just as human beings that are not born again, just in our human capacities, which are considerable, being made in the image of God, but skewed by sin. But in that natural state, you could be super intelligent. You could get the highest scores on tests. You can have a mental retention that is incredible. You know, you could read and memorize whole books. You've all met people like this. Maybe you're like that yourself. But that natural intelligence or that power of our mind is unable to do what Paul is praying for. Paul was praying for a supernatural comprehension of something, meaning you have to have spiritual eyes to get the fullness of it. That's why somebody can read the text of Scripture and be impressed with the loftiness of the speech, the thought pattern, and so forth, but it doesn't connect to them personally, and they don't see how it's speaking to them. It's not a mirror that they look into, like James says, for the believer. It's dull. It's just a blank slate for them. So we have to have God's aid to understand what his word expresses, and to know God himself. That God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's the first phrase in verse 17. And notice that spirit in your translation is capitalized. This is because the translators think, in context, this is another reference to the Holy Spirit, and that is likely right. But even if it's meant that We are to have a a spirit ourselves or a demeanor of wisdom and revelation. Either way, it depends on the Holy Spirit for origin. The spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is a prayer that the people of God would really know God. I mean, know them as their father. Not just as a man who does this and that, 
our Father, the God of the universe, as our Father, to know Him. You know, J.I. Packer wrote in his um, iconic work, Knowing God, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Packer's exactly right, and he's capturing what Paul's praying for. Paul knows that if the people come to know God, if they are given God's Spirit to help them have wisdom and discernment about who God is and the knowledge of Him, then most of the rest of their life will fall into place according to that relationship. He's praying for us to know God. Many of you uh, hear the name John Calvin mentioned often in our church. It's one of the original Presbyterian fathers, you might say, as it relates to doctrine and church government. He was a reformer. But at the base level, he was a pastor of a local church. He preached hundreds and hundreds of sermons and wrote many treatises. He helped organize a church. He organized a school, a college, founded a ministry training academy. He wrote commentaries on almost every book of the Bible. But his magnum opus, the the, the great work of his life, this massive volume that he worked on three different revisions, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, a huge book to tell people what Christianity taught. Where do you think he starts his volume? The very first book, the very first chapter, The Knowledge of God and of Ourselves, Mutually Connected. He knows that for us to go anywhere, we have to know God And when we know God, we'll then be able to know ourselves accurately. And this is something that spiritual eyes have to see. And he enumerates through scripture how this is true. We have to know God by him revealing it, not just by nature and knowing there is a God, but to know him personally. That's what Calvin is building a case for in his great work, The Institutes. He says the sum of true wisdom is the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But it has to be that order. You have to know God first. He says the effects of knowledge of God, or the effect of the knowledge of God, is that it humbles our pride, it unveils our hypocrisy. The knowledge of God demonstrates his absolute perfection in our own utter helplessness. As we come to know God, we're put in our right place. But we cannot know him except that God gives us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him. Calvin says, by the knowledge of God, I understand that by which we are not We not only conceive that there is some God, but also apprehend, another good word for spiritual eyes, that we apprehend what it is for our interest and conducive to his glory. What, in short, is befitting to know concerning him, Calvin writes. So he goes on to explain how every person has an innate knowledge that there is a God because of creation, but that knowledge is skewed and insufficient and partial, and it's not able to lead us to salvation. But now Paul's speaking to people who have professed faith. They say they have faith in Christ. And yet he's still praying, furthermore, that they have spiritual apprehension so they can completely plumb the depths of all our benefits in Christ, in our union with Christ. Verse 17, that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Paul's prayer is for spiritual understanding. And he puts it another way. Look at verse 18. It's a synonymous phrase. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Just saying it another way. Give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, O Lord. It's a prayer for spiritual discernment, spiritual apprehension, spiritual appreciation. A prayer that we might be able to grasp something or fathom something spiritually. And not be limited to what our natural perspective might suggest. 
what is unfathomable with natural eyes might become understandable through spiritual eyes. And this is what Paul desires for Christians, for the church. Because the deepest longings and the greatest needs you have and I have are actually spiritual. And spiritual is no less real than physical. We are created as a body and a soul. One of the problems with the fall is that it disconnects our, con- our conception of our soul, the spiritual. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What in particular is the apostle asking God to give spiritual eyes concerning? Well, verse 18, there's two things there. Look, at, look closely at the text. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So that's the first thing. The hope that he has called us to. And then secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Know what is the hope that he has called us to. One. Two, what are the riches of our inheritance? So our present hope in Jesus and what that means for the future as God's inheritance, as God's possession. What will we get being united to Christ for eternity? The second part of verse 18, that you may know what is the hope. We share in Christ's death and resurrection, and we share in his ministry now as he's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, mediating for us. Our calling is in Christ. We've been called in Christ, and our hope is wrapped up in Christ. Our hope for now and our hope for eternity. John Stott gives so many wise too many to quote in one sermon. It'd be like I just read the commentary to you. We'd all be better off. But John Stott said this. He called us to Christ and holiness, to freedom and peace, to suffering and glory. This is our calling in Christ. He said further, more simply, it was a call to an altogether new life in which we know, love, obey, and serve Christ to whom we are united. We enjoy fellowship with him and we enjoy fellowship with each other in Christ. That's our new calling. That's the hope of our calling, that it's an eternal thing. It'll last forever and grow deeper. We look beyond, Stott says, our present suffering to the glory which will one day be revealed. And he's starting to lead now into the second feature of this prayer. This is the hope to which he has called you. Paul prays that our eyes may be opened to it. That the eyes of our hearts may be opened. Verse 18 says something else, though, that we might know the riches of of our future destiny as God's possession. That's what he means to say when he says, the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? I don't know how many of you have had the situation where you knew down the line you were going to receive an inheritance. That changes how you live now. If you know something's coming later, you live more free or you live with less worry about particular things if you know they're somehow taken care of in the future, humanly speaking. But this inheritance is guaranteed by God, secured through the Son, The Spirit assures us of this. These riches that await us in Christ for eternity. If we know this, if we conceive of this now, it will change your view of everyday living. You'll live taking more spiritual risks in the best sense of that word, risk. You'll be less encumbered about worries that would grip us as temporal beings. You'll be far more open to follow God's call, his specific call now in your life, to go and reach out for something that will 
shed glory, God's glory to everyone who's watching. You don't worry about that because you know that your future is secure. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints awaits you because you belong to him. We, when we know what we will become or await, we absolutely live differently here. James Boyce said, it is the citizens of heaven that make the greatest difference on earth. That's the opposite of thinking, I'm so heavenly minded, I'm no earthly good. That's not true. If you understand what heaven is, which is the fulfillment or consummation of God's plan to restore all things unto himself, and an eternity of actual living and glorifying God. When you understand that about life and living and about the future, and you're a citizen of heaven, that's going to change the way you look at life today and tomorrow. Well, there's one more thing we see in verse 19 down to the end of this passage. It's one more thing that Paul prays for, but there's a lot there. That's why we'll take another week to unpack it. The prayer that Paul is praying that we have before us is that we would know God's power at work through, uh, through Christ, the lordship of Christ, and how it works through his church, not just individual believers, his church. Paul wants the church to know of the active power working to uphold us and advance us. We see outward powers that confront the people of God all the time. I know the church is persecuted many places, and people think they're shutting down the activity of the church. People think or powers think that they're thwarting the advance of the church, but that's never actually true, and that's why we need spiritual eyes to realize what happens and what comes. The apostle wants the church to know that there is a mighty power at work. Remember, Paul's writing this in prison. He would have every reason to think, wow, this whole thing has come to an end. Here I am stuck in prison. But that's not what their future holds. First, you'll see the divine power that upholds Christians is the same one that raised Jesus. Look at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the power that's at work with us in us, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power that compels the church onward. Christ will have dominion in the body of Christ, the church, will enjoy that dominion with him. You know, we have a measurement for power. The great measurement for power is horsepower. Horsepower is a unit of measurement or the rate at which work is done. You remember from your science classes. It's usually in reference to the out, output of engines or motors. It's interesting, the term horsepower was adopted in the late 18th century by a Scottish engineer named James Watt. Scottish people are awesome. They invented the horsepower and they invented Presbyterianism. What else can you have? These are the Scots. And we should have been going to Scotland in a couple days, but God is is sovereign and providentially hindered us for this year. The Scots invented the term horsepower, and the legend goes that the horsepower unit was created when one of Watt's first customers demanded an engine that would match a horse and chose the strongest horse he had driving it to the limit. Watt accepted the challenge and built a machine that was actually even stronger than the horse. And it was the output of that machine which became the horsepower. You know a Honda Civic has 140 horsepower? A Toyota minivan has 190. A Ferrari only has 375 and it's base stock level. I would have thought more. A Corvette can have 400 to 600. A Camaro could have 650 right off the line. 
horsepower is a measurement, a unit of measurement. There is no unit of measurement for God's power. It can only be described. And how can you describe it in more lofty terms than verse 19? And this is the power at work in us and for us, the church. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? How how do you quantify that? Toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. It's that great might that we see also raise Jesus. And that power has not stopped. It's still working. Jesus is reigning from God's right hand. Verse 20, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Remember, we have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places where Christ is. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the one to come. That power that raised Jesus has not stopped working in the church. It's still working, and Jesus is reigning from that place at God's right hand. Also, notice in verse 21, Jesus is overseeing the world and the universe, for that matter, as the king. He's working all things toward an appointed end in the heavenly kingdom to come. He's the king of the universe, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, putting all things under his feet. So the first statement Paul makes as he closes his prayer out is that Jesus is the king of the universe. And it's his power that works in the church. And here's the great connection and the encouragement for us here gathered. We have, as the king of the church, the one who is the king of the universe. And notice the order. Paul says, hey, he's the king of the universe, but you know what's better? He's the king of the church. That's what it says in verse 21 and 22. Puts all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So, Jesus, who's the king of the universe, for some reason Paul mentions now the the family of the redeemed, the elect he's speaking to. Jesus is the head of them. That means that Jesus has a purpose for his church that will absolutely impact the universe. That's the order, the reason for the order. Not that he's head of the church and then, oh, by the way, he's also king of the universe. No, he's king of the universe. And through the church, you're going to see the exercise of dominion. That's what he is going to do ultimately. Put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's not just that God made Jesus head over all things, but that he gave him as head over all things to the church. John Stott, once again, for he whom God gave to the church to be its head was already the head of the universe. Thus, both universe and church have in Jesus Christ the same head. What a prayer. What a powerful prayer. What a way to follow up those verses that we see proceeding. A chapter, Ephesians 1, that spanned, that had a full sentence that spanned 11 verses, 203 words about the great saving grace and love of the eternal trinity towards the church. This opening chapter of Ephesians, this great praise to God in these opening verses. The chapter now closes with a great prayer from the apostle that we would be able to spiritually comprehend all that is said in that long sentence. This is a prayer that God would give us spiritual eyes to see the fullness of our blessings in Christ. This is a prayer that we would be able to appreciate to the fullest possible extent the implications of the blessings that we have received in Christ and are still to come. Ephesians 1 summarized, a great praise and a great prayer.
This is a great model for our worship, by the way. Praise and prayer. This is a great model for our life. Praise and prayer. Once again, John Stott. If we keep together praise and prayer, benediction and petition, we are likely never to lose our spiritual equilibrium. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, I give you thanks for the faith that you have given this body of believers called Redeemer for their love of Christ and each other. I pray, O Lord, that you would give us your Spirit's aid so that we might have heavenly wisdom and would understand what you teach us in your word. I pray that we would know Christ better today and each day hereafter. I pray that you would give us clarity about your call for our lives. Please enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Give us spiritual discernment. Lord, please grant us daily a true appreciation and true apprehension of the blessings that we have now in Christ and the future we have because of Christ. With this spiritual perspective about the riches that are ours in Christ, give us strength and boldness for following you in this life. Lord, assure us of your power at work in us individually, but especially as your church who's under King Jesus, the King of the universe, is our King and our, and our elder brother, and you are our Father. And that the same power that raised Jesus is working in the world to the ascended King ruling over his church. All praise and glory is due unto you, Lord Jesus, who rules far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named both now and forever. Amen. Let us turn in our hymnals to respond. We'll sing number 348, Jesus with thy church abide. We'll stand as we sing.